Talk to enough people about the car industry, and eventually you'll notice a theme that keeps emerging again and again. I think one of the interesting analogies that we like to consider is actually thinking more around the handset industry and the move from feature phones to smartphones. The EVs are taking on more and more characteristics of um, electronic devices such as smartphone. The analogy between the car of the future and the smartphone isn't just about superficial things. What we're talking about isn't just that lots of new cars today have big touchscreens on their dashboards. The entire car is transforming from a mechanical platform to a digital one. And its function and purpose will be completely different from what it is now. Which means that building the car of tomorrow will require completely different supply chains, manufacturing methods, and skilled labor. And those changes are already happening today. I'm Sam Grobart, deputy editor at Goldman Sachs, and this is The Future of Four Wheels, a four-part series from Goldman Sachs Exchanges on what the electrification and automation of the car will mean for industries, investors, and the economy. This is part two, building the car of the future. Quick disclaimer. We're going to be referring to real companies, real brands, real names throughout this episode, but none of it should be construed as any endorsement of another company, and certainly none of it should be considered as investment advice from Goldman Sachs. Okay, let's get back to it. Tina Hu is a VP at Goldman Sachs Research in Shanghai. She's an expert on EV production in China. She's also the first person I met who had made this connection between the car in our driveway and the phone in our pocket. So I think the comparison between EVs and smartphones come from the fact that the EVs are taking on more and more characteristics of electronic devices such as smartphone, both in terms of hardware as well as software. Here's an example. A car has hundreds of different functions, and it used to have hundreds of small electronic control units for each one. When you lowered the window, that was run by one control unit. Raising the cabin temperature came from another. This extended to more fundamental things like transmissions and brakes, but integrating all these functions had always been really hard and really inefficient. Contrast that to a modern electric vehicle, which has half the number of control units you'd find in a traditional automobile. You have one single operating system that takes advantage of sensors and hardware working together to deliver a variety of experiences. Sound familiar? That same sentence can describe a smartphone. In the car of the future, everything from battery management to how fast the motors spin to the streaming video you're watching while at the charging station is coming from the same integrated place. We've gone from a very complex mechanical thing with a little bit of software to a much simpler mechanical thing with a ton of software. And there's another similarity to smartphones. Here's Tina. So the software can get updated real time and over very high frequency, just like we get software update from our Apple iOS. That's exactly what we're seeing the EVs are doing at this place. So it's like an electronic device where you just get software updates from time to time. Used to be the minute you drove your car off the lot, 
it immediately started losing its value. But now, your car gets new features overnight, just like your smartphone. Maybe you get a dog mode update to keep your pets from getting too hot while you run into the store, or maybe you get a performance boost. Point is, your car can now actually get better over time. But it's how cars will be produced that really draws parallels to the smartphone. In the past, when we thought about a car being made, we generally thought about thousands upon thousands of parts coming together on an assembly line. But EVs are different. For starters, they don't have nearly as many parts. The difference between EV and the ICE is that the number of components has actually greatly reduced from over 20,000 to, let's say, over 10,000 now. Think about it. In an EV, you don't have a transmission. You don't have an exhaust. You don't require spark plugs, fuel injectors, valves, pistons, camshafts. And look at the thing that makes these cars move. The typical internal combustion engine has more than 1,000 parts. An electric motor? Around 50. And while traditional cars are made by a manufacturer, those manufacturers rely on a vast network of component suppliers who actually make many of the parts. But if you're a car maker that makes EVs, then you have way fewer parts to assemble. So you may want to bring more of that work in-house. The auto industry refers to this as vertical integration. And the reason to vertically integrate your production is to make it more yours. Tina talked about one example of this from Chinese car maker BYD. With EVs, we see more consolidation and integration in terms of the hardware side as well. For example, BYD, they have this eight-in-one powertrain system, which basically takes eight different components and then combine them into one. This helps with the energy consumption, the power consumption efficiency, also help with the cost reduction of the hardware side of things. It's really quite clever, but we haven't gotten to the cool part yet. And then the other thing, obviously, we cannot not talk about the integrated die-casting or gigacasting, which is, um, I think, created by Tesla. The gigapress. Yes, the gigapress. That is Tell also... Tell me more about the... Tell, I, that is the greatest name. Tell me more about the gigapress. What is it? So it's a huge, humongous machine. And then, basically, it takes over... 65, 70 different components, and then just cast it into one single component. Wow. It's like a huge press inside the factory. You know those videos of robots welding a car body together in a traditional factory? Well, instead of all that welding and all those parts, you now just pour everything into a mold, like some industrial-strength Play-Doh fun factory. It's a massive step change in how cars are made. In the past, there were advantages to outsourcing many of the parts that went into an automobile. But in this new, new car market, it may be wise to move more of your operations in-house. Tina says this is true for two reasons. The first one is because the EV industry is still quite emerging compared to the ICE world. So the technology is changing, is evolving every day. So you really need to integrate and in-house a lot of the technology, hardware, software, so you can continue to develop and change the technology in order to better compete and better match the consumer demand. Because there is nobody, no supplier in the world already telling you, okay, this is what you will need next year or the year after. So you need to figure that out by yourself. The second reason, says Tina, 
is the same reason so many businesses had to reevaluate their supply chains. COVID. During the last three years, because of the pandemic, there is a lot of disruption in the global supply chain. COVID supply chain shocks caused many businesses to rethink their manufacturing playbook. And the ones which did moved away from yesterday's just-in-time supply chain model and more toward an in-house flexible process. When demand returned, companies like BYD were ready. That's why they did so well during the past three years. I think before the pandemic or before the big EV transition, BYD sales volume is just around 500,000 every year, and it has been flat for a number of years. But in 2023... They're looking at 3 million volume in terms of vehicle sales. Yeah, so vertical integration currently, I think, is um, very important for the EV companies. So a simpler product means more opportunities to bring things in-house, which makes you a nimbler, more responsive player in a changing marketplace. It's a compelling recipe for success, if you can pull it off. The impact of this shift will be felt around the world, but there's a part of the world that deserves special attention when it comes to making the car of the future. China. The world's second largest economy is set up differently than most industrial markets. For starters, it keeps almost everything you'd need to make a car really close at hand. Just to give you one data point, I think for Tesla's China factory, 95% of the components are localized. Quick comparison here. The best-selling vehicle in the U.S. is the Ford F-150 pickup truck. It's assembled in Michigan and Missouri, but only 60% of its parts are from the U.S. The rest come from somewhere else. China's ability to keep so much of its supply chain in its own borders is, of course, by design. Tina taught me a new word that describes it. There's a term called involution. 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 Or to translate, you just excessively compete with each other. Once a certain investment track or a product track opens up and it is growing very fast, that will attract numerous new entrants into the market. And then putting together the government support in that specific space And then the central government will just put out like an overall general guidance. Okay, we want to support this industry. And that directive, Tina says, has a way of cascading across the country, down to provincial and city governments, each one vying to have the most accommodating, supportive policies for local industry. And then, obviously, a lot of the new entrants will come in, which then will create, very quickly create, overcapacity for the industry. And then overcapacity will lead to just price competition, which is what we're seeing now. And then after a while, then you just need to pull back. And then the industry will need to slowly consolidate. China has this massive domestic supply chain to satisfy a massive domestic demand for electric vehicles. Last year, 60% of all new electric vehicles sold were in China. But as demand increases across the globe, other countries will want to source more EV production on their own turf. Going forward, probably it's going to be more diversified Mm -hmm. because we've already seen like the U.S., they are trying to move the supply chain to the local markets, which is understandable because for an automaker or for the auto industry, local production is key. 
In the U.S., there's been more than $50 billion of investments in the EV supply chain since the Inflation Reduction Act was signed into law in 2022. By 2030, the U.S. is expected to produce over 5 million EVs a year, more than triple what's produced today. All that funding and expenditure is accelerating the move to new electric vehicles, but even in this fertile environment, startup and legacy automakers are thinking about their approaches and their balance sheets in different ways, with different pros and cons for each kind of car maker. Some of the traditional automakers are arguing maybe they have like a latecomer advantage because they've yeah. already seen what doesn't work. And then on the other hand, I think some may see their ICE as a drag to their NEV transition. But if they have made pretty good profit from the ICE historically, then that means that they would have probably more funding to invest into EV and to be able to sustain the loss within the next couple of years, I would say. Whereas startups, well, they don't have any existing profits. They just got started, so they have to find different sources of funding. Yeah, and then you need to just uh, resort to the public market or private market or third parties, uh, basically, to just continuously ask for funding. There might not be a conclusion like which one of this is better and which type of companies can last till the end. Automakers new and old have a lot of strategic decisions to make, from how they manage their cash flow to how much they bring in-house to how they convert a classically depreciating asset into one that can update itself with new features. But then there's the far more fundamental question of what you need, literally, materially, to actually make a new car. And finding and refining the new set of raw materials that's required is no simple thing. When you think about the transition from the internal combustion engine to the electric vehicle, I think the way to frame it is we're moving from you know, essentially a fuel-intensive to metals-intensive car uh, as we go into the future. That's Nicholas Snowden. He's the head of metals within the commodities team at Goldman Sachs Research in London. For more than 100 years, the auto industry has been based on a relatively fixed set of natural resources, materials like iron, oil, and rubber. But with the rise of EVs and the batteries that power them, a whole new set of minerals have become critical ingredients for the car of the future. You know, if you look at the volume of raw materials, minerals that go into an EV versus an ICE vehicle, it's about six times the, the amount. So it is a big step up in, in volumes. Six, six X the minerals. You're six saying. X, yes. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then thinking about what are the key new minerals that are affected by this effect. So what are they? It depends on which part of the car of the future we're talking about. In the battery of an EV, you need minerals such as lithium, cobalt, and nickel. To distribute that battery's electricity around the car, you need metals like aluminum and copper. And finally, there are the rare earths that are used in the magnets in EV motors. So a number of new commodities that, that are touched by this kind of EV revolution, absolutely. So those are all things automakers now need that they didn't need before. And that raises the question of whether the world has enough of these resources to support the growth in EVs that Goldman Sachs forecasts. I mean, just simply, is there enough? In some of these metals, no. One of the things that we've written about a lot over the last few years is, is the underinvestment in the supply side of metals like copper and aluminium. 
Now, when you think about the impact from that over those preceding years, we really don't have enough supply coming into the market. And, and that does mean that when you think about the market in 2025 and the second half of the current decade, we do see very severe imbalances in an already quite low in inventory environment impacting those commodities. So yes, I think there can be very serious concerns over do you have enough copper, do you have enough aluminium to meet those needs. Other metals like lithium, cobalt, nickel, those have seen a lot of capex actually come into the supply side of the markets over the last three, four years. And so they actually have an accelerating pipeline over the next few years. Then there's the question of where these materials are in the world. Just like oil, these minerals are concentrated in certain countries. Chile is the Saudi Arabia of copper, with about a third of global production. Peru is another 10%. If we're talking cobalt, three-quarters of the world's supply comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Rare earths? More than 60% of them come from China. There's certainly more stores of these materials, in great abundance, in fact. But much of it is still deep in the ground. It's going to require a lot more mining and extraction to convert them into the things we need to support more and more electric vehicles. There's enough copper ore and bauxite, which is used for, for aluminium in, in the Earth's crust. But you know, what has not happened is the capital deployment to build the supply infrastructure to get that volume out of the ground. You know, one of the reasons why that hasn't happened is prices have simply been too low for most of the last decade. And you know, whilst you have seen a bit of a pickup in price over the last few years, it's not yet been enough to, to incentivize a pickup in investment. On top of that, the whole kind of ESG movement has created a lot of bottlenecks and, and hurdles at a kind of operational level in, in terms of getting projects off the ground. So the permitting on a copper mine that would have taken a few months in the 2000s now can take three, four years, and, and that you know, assumes that you get through that stage. So it's a much longer, much more costly undertaking than, than it was in the past. And that's simply why the capital uh, is not flowing. Now, one thing I would add is governments do recognize this issue. It's not new, but so far, you know, you're not seeing lots of new copper mines being approved in Western countries. And you know, that probably has to start to change for the, the sort of severity of the imbalances ahead and highs for price moderate. And don't forget, once you get these minerals out of the ground, you have to refine them. And guess where most of those refineries are currently located? Upwards of 60, and in some cases, closer to 90% of refining capacity of these materials currently sits in China. Automakers have long been sophisticated buyers of raw materials such as copper and aluminum, even when car companies were just making internal combustion engine cars. But when it comes to investing in the metals needed for electric vehicles, well, those markets are newer. Hedging your exposure to copper or aluminium is, is very straightforward. You can go to the London Metals Exchange and you know, sell forward a contract in 12 months' time for your equivalent exposure, and, and you lock in a price. Or, you know, if you're, you're a consumer, buy forward, and that locks in the price. Um, but these kind of newer raw material markets like lithium are, are just starting to emerge. The lithium market may be in its relative infancy, but it's going to have to grow up fast. That's because lithium, along with cobalt, manganese, nickel, and aluminum, are all key ingredients in what is the most important and most expensive part in the car of the future. 
the battery. Obviously, electric cars save you money on gas. But right now, they're more expensive to buy than cars that still use gas. One of the reasons they're more expensive is the cost of the electric battery. So making batteries cheaper and better is crucial. Nikhil Bandari covers the battery industry at Goldman Sachs Research in Singapore, and he sees battery prices heading for a significant milestone. We now expect battery prices to fall 40% by 2025, from last year levels towards $99 per kilowatt hour pack price. Now, $100 or below is a magic number at which we see the parity arriving for EV and ICE. A kilowatt hour is simply a measure of a battery's energy. Currently, the average cost per kilowatt hour is between $110 and $120. But, as Nikhil's saying, get that down below $100, and previously more expensive EVs start to cost the same as internal combustion cars. Batteries are almost uh, 25 to 30% of the price of the car. So a 40% deflation in battery price is meaningful to achieve the parity of EV to ICE cars. So if you're someone who might consider buying an electric vehicle soon, this is good news. EVs will get cheaper. And here's another factor driving battery prices lower. There are three regions that make more than 90% of all the electric batteries in the world. China, Japan, and South Korea. And Goldman Sachs Research is forecasting that these three regions will provide an oversupply of batteries for the next three years, driving down prices. But beyond three years, things get murkier. To understand why, it helps to understand something about the technology of electric batteries themselves. Today, we have two competing battery chemistries, lithium and nickel. Lithium-based batteries tend to be cheaper and are better for smaller cars with more limited range. Nickel is more expensive, but it's better for cars that need more miles per charge. Nicholas Snowden again. For now, you know, we see an environment where the two chemistries continue to compete, but have qualities that allow them to have a stronger foothold in some markets versus others. Um, so lithium-based chemistries dominate China. Nickel-based chemistries dominate the U.S., and, and Europe kind of stands in, in the middle. But it doesn't stop there. Nikhil says new and promising battery technologies are also being developed. One of those, a solid-state battery, is something Nikhil's keeping a close eye on. It is expected to be the game-changer from energy density or miles per charge perspective. We could go over 1,000 kilometer per charge range, versus the current tech goes up to 500 to 600 kilometer per charge in terms of the range. In every battery ever made, a cathode and an anode are separated and contained in a liquid electrolyte that allows ions to move from one side of the battery to the other. It's this reaction that creates electricity. But in a solid-state battery, everything is, well, solid. There's no liquid involved. This creates greater energy density, which means a smaller battery can produce more power. And also, it's a more stable chemistry, so solid-state batteries are safer. There's still work to be done, and Nikhil expects to see commercial versions of solid-state batteries late this decade or early next. So that's one new possible game-changing battery technology. Here's another one, the sodium-ion battery. It'd be even less expensive than lithium-ion tech, in part because its key material, sodium, can be found in salt water, and there's certainly plenty of that on the planet. Sodium-ion batteries also don't require other rare materials like cobalt, so their environmental impact is smaller. 
The innovations in making new kinds of batteries are also leading to new innovations in finding enough materials like lithium and nickel. There seems to be enough of both to keep bringing down the cost of batteries in the short run. In the long run, there's another innovation that might help, battery recycling. Right now, we don't have enough old batteries to recycle, but Goldman Sachs Research expects nearly 50% of the metals required for batteries can come from recycled materials by 2040. The biggest bottleneck for electric vehicles is actually an old metal, copper, which is important for both making batteries and also for other parts of electric cars. Nicholas Snowden again. Copper market really does suffer from a you know, shortage of transformative supply technology. And I think copper is the one where you need that. Copper is really the one which needs the, the kind of shale oil equivalent innovation. Shale oil revolutionized the oil industry. It made it easier to get oil out of places that were previously considered impossible. Copper needs that now, because the problem is that copper is closer to something called peak mine supply than at any point in the last half century. So when we think about peak mine supply, that is the point when global copper mine production is basically going to hit its peak level. And because we've had so little investment in the copper mining sector over the past decade, and in, in fact, investment has been shrinking, even as we approach this peak mine supply point, that means there just isn't incremental supply coming through from 2025 onwards. So essentially, the way we're modeling that, that market now is you hit this peak supply level in 25, you stay at that into 26, and then from there onwards, you will see production decline. And, and what does that mean? Well, it means that the bar to generating tightness in that market from a demand perspective is going to be extremely low. And without a shale moment for copper, there's no easy fix because bringing a copper mine online can take six to seven years. What's clear is that the key to the car's evolution lies within the kilowatt hours of the batteries that will power them. Getting these batteries to be smaller, lighter, more efficient, and safer is now the number one priority for every automaker and supplier. It's a work in progress. So I, I think it's a phase of creative destruction. You know, I think you can have confidence on where battery chemistry will be over the next three, five years. But you know, if you're to ask me where battery chemistry will be in 10, 15 years, you know, I think that's a much, much higher potential for new chemistries to emerge and that to create new raw material requirements. Dive under the hood, or under the floor in this case, of an EV and you quickly see how different and strange this whole new world is. There are brand new technologies requiring new and exotic materials being built in entirely new ways by new companies. And it's still changing. A lot. Next time, we step back and take a look at the commercial, financial, and corporate implications of the future of the car. What is the new, new car business going to look like? The opinions and views expressed in this program are not necessarily the opinions of Goldman Sachs or its affiliates. This program should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part 
or disclosed by any recipient to any other person without the express written consent of Goldman Sachs. Each name of a third-party organization mentioned in this program is the property of the company to which it relates and is used here strictly for informational and identification purposes only and is not used to imply any ownership or license rights between any such company and Goldman Sachs. The content of this program does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient and is provided for informational purposes only. Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, investment, accounting, or tax advice through this program or to its recipient. Certain information contained in this program constitutes forward-looking statements, and there's no guarantee that these results will be achieved. Goldman Sachs has no obligation to provide updates or changes to the information in this program. Past performance does not guarantee future results, which may vary. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this program and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed.